Would you remain, remain standing for the reading of God's word? Our passage this morning is Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. If you'd like to follow along in a pew Bible, if you don't have one of your own or an app, that's page 810. While you're finding that, let me just remind you that we are looking at the Sermon on the Mount. I know Christ Church was blessed to have Ernie Shipman come and preach from the Gospel of John these past few weeks, but we are continuing back in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has been preaching to his disciples. He's begun to do miracles and proclaim the kingdom, gather some disciples, and now he is preaching a message of the kingdom. And his disciples are learning much, and the crowds are coming to listen as well. Let us now listen to what he has to say. Matthew chapter 5, 38 to 48, God's word for us today. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you than doing what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As I mentioned, and if we need a reminder, this sermon series is on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, entitled the series, Uncommon Sense, The Way of the King in the Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus' ways do not tend to be our ways. The ways of the kingdom of God do not tend to be the ways of the kingdoms of this world. And so if you've been participating with us, I imagine that this sermon series has been at times a blessing, but at times a challenge, a convicting time. I know it has been for me. And I just say that this morning because um, as I reflected and studied and prepared for this morning, I found in many ways this section to be among the most challenging and convicting for me. Because I think the values of the kingdom expressed here are some of the values that contrast most with our American and Western culture. And so know that ahead of time. And this is why we pray. That what I would say would be God's word and what you hear would be what God has for you this morning. So please pray with me. Gracious God and Father, we come to your word because your word are the words of life. They show us who you are. They show us who we are. They show us how we might know you and be in relationship to you. 
Dear God, help us by your Spirit to be honest with ourselves this morning. To listen to the truth well. And would your Spirit give us help. Help to listen, help to respond, and I need your Spirit's help, Lord, this morning, that I might speak only what you have for your people this morning. Would all else fall away. This we pray in the name of Jesus, the living word. Amen. Fifth grade was a pivotal time for me. It's a time where kids are going back to school, and it had me thinking about fifth grade. Because fifth grade was the, the grade in which I began to understand that I enjoyed learning. Uh, I had been a student. I had done okay in school. But it was really in fifth grade, and Mrs. Alexander, my teacher, that I began to realize that learning was, could be fun. Uh, that doing well, studying, reading, math, all of this had implications. And so it was, in many ways, one of the first years I got excited about going to school. And so it was with all of this excitement of a love of learning newly found that the contrast of my seatmates stood out. My love of learning was dampened a bit by John. That year, we had our various desks, but they were put together in clusters as a table, and John was a constant participant at our table. John was hyper. John was easily distracted. John would get up and move around. He would ask questions. He would need lots of help. And John, for whatever reason, tended to pick me out to take out some of his aggressions until it kind of came to a head one day during a fire drill when on the way back to the classroom he punched me in the head, tripped me, and ran off back into the school before I could respond. I didn't know what to do with John. I knew I wasn't supposed to respond to him the way that he treated me, but John, in my view, was mainly an impediment to me. He got in my way because he interrupted the class. He needed help from me and my classmates, and he was mean to me. I wish I had known then the bigger picture of what was going on. Talking to my parents who had conversations with the teacher, I came to understand later on that part of the reason that John sat with me and the other students was so that we could be a potentially good influence on him that we could help him with his studies, that we could help him understand what was going on in the classroom, that we might be good examples to him. Now, whether or not that's good teaching practice, I don't know whether that's good classroom management, but I wish I had known that. Because then, instead of me just thinking about how I was supposed to respond and how John was getting in my way, I might have been able to think about, well, how can I be a friend to John? How can I be an example? How can I be a help to him? Jesus does for his disciples here what my teachers did not do for me. He gives us a glimpse of the bigger picture. Beyond our inconvenience, beyond our insult, beyond oppression and opposition, he gives us a vision not only of what those people are doing to us, but how we are supposed to respond in the kingdom. A greater purpose that he has for us. And so this morning, what we're going to look at is, what is Jesus 
telling us to do? What is the greater purpose that he has for us? Why this is supposed to be our response? And then how it is that we might be able to respond in the way that he calls us to? This morning, I want us to consider what is Jesus telling us to do? And if you're following along in the outline, it says, what is Jesus telling us to give up? But I don't think that fully captures what Jesus is saying here. So what is Jesus telling us to do? Jesus starts with this formula that he's been using in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And he begins with something that they are very familiar with, both from the Old Testament and from the cultures that surrounded them. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is often referred to as the lex talanus, the law of the claw. First of all, what is Jesus responding to? You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. We hear that and that seems retributive. We hear that and that seems vengeful. But in fact, the whole purpose of this law was to restrain vengeance, was to restrain people responding to slight and injury and insult by taking things into their own hands. Because there is a human tendency when we are hurt to respond with hurt that is even greater. This dates back to the earliest times in Scripture. In Genesis chapter 4, we read of Lamech. And Lamech is boasting to his wives. He is saying, look how lucky you are to be married to me, O Ada and Zillah. He says, Ada, Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to me and what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me. A young man for striking me. See how I respond when someone would insult and injure me? I make sure that will never happen again. We may think that this is a problem of the ancient past where there was blood feuds and so on, but we see it throughout human history. The evils of the past with lynchings in our own history or public executions often were an over-response to a perceived slight through a public display to make those in power feel good about themselves. Just a few weeks ago, people were remembering the death of Emmett Till, who was killed because he potentially spoke flirtingly to a white woman. How dare he slight the public conventions so he should be put to death? Just about a week and a half ago, a public official in another state responding to the sad news of the servicemen and women who lost their lives outside of Kabul said, we should flatten a village for every life lost. The Lex Talanus, an eye for an eye, is a good thing. It restrains us from wanting to go and enact further punishment, further retribution against those who hurt us. And Jesus is saying, you have heard this said. This is throughout history. We have a version of it in our own constitution. We have amendment such that there is no cruel and unusual punishment. We want to restrain individuals and our government from overreacting. Jesus said, you've heard it said, and as he continues to do, you've heard these things said. These are good things. These are reasonable things. But I say to you, and then what he goes on to do is unpack really God's intention for his people beyond and above. 
He says, but I say to you that if anyone slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other. If anyone would sue you to take your tunic, let him have your cloak. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. What exactly is Jesus asking to do? These are not situations we face. First of all, turning the other cheek. You may have here in your mind's eye a picture of overt violence and brutality. But pay attention to the details with me. First of all, this is not described as a, as a punch. And if we pay attention to it, it really can't be a punch because most people are right-handed. And certainly in the ancient Near East, even if you weren't right-handed, you acted as if you were right-handed because there was shame and taboo about being left-handed. So if you go to strike someone with your right hand to punch them, where are you going to hit them? You're going to hit their left cheek. It says here explicitly the right cheek. What's described here is the backhand of insult. Someone comes to you and backhands you in the face to insult you. This is not an act, it is an act of violence, but it's not primarily about harm. It is about insult and injury to pride. The next thing he describes here is a legal suit. Someone says, you have an unfulfilled debt, or you owe me something. Instead of settling it ourselves, we're going to take you to court. It says there that they're suing you for your tunic. Your tunic is your shirt, your inner clothing, that which is closest to your body. And most people's money and property was bound up in their clothes. Most people had one, maybe two changes of clothing and a pair of shoes. These things were valuable to them. But according to custom and law, you could only sue for a tunic and not the cloak. The cloak is the outer garment. It's the robe. It's the thing that can serve as a blanket and shelter against the elements. And so the law kept people for, from being sued, basically from losing their home or at least losing the protection against the elements of their robe. And Jesus is saying, if they want your tunic to settle a debt... Be willing to give them that which the law even says you're not required to give them. Then perhaps here the, the most challenging of these in many ways, he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And maybe you've been encouraged to go the extra mile. When you were first starting out in a job, say, don't just do what your manager tells you to do. Go the extra mile. Go the extra bit of effort. What is being described here is the fact that the Romans who had invaded and overtaken Judea and the Jews had under Roman law the right to force any man to carry their supplies a thousand paces, close to a mile. Jesus is saying, if a Roman soldier comes and tells you to carry his stuff for a mile, agree to carry it and go with him another mile. And then lastly, he describes those who beg, who are poor and needy, who either ask for you to give them something or don't have what they need and request to borrow something, maybe an oxen, maybe a tool that you have, or even finances, to give freely. What is Jesus telling us? What is Jesus asking of us? What Jesus is saying is when we have these types of situations, 
that our call is to not preserve our dignity, our honor, our property, or our rights. When we are insulted, when we are inconvenienced, when we are oppressed and opposed, rather than taking what we think is right in response to set aside our sense of personal privilege and entitlement. So what Jesus is not saying is, he's not saying we are never to defend ourselves or to defend others when there is real harm. There is throughout scripture enjoinders to protect the weak. The government is established to punish the wrongdoer. But Jesus says when you personally as a follower of Christ are mistreated, opposed, insulted, or inconvenienced because someone wants to borrow your property, your response is not to say, I have a right to this. Or you can only do this. But says instead to give up our rights, our dignity, our entitlement in these situations. Because what Jesus is asking us is to trust God to vindicate and resolve. He's not saying be a doormat. He's not saying be a victim throughout all of your life. But what he's saying in these situations in which you might be publicly shamed, in which you might be humiliated, in which you might be inconvenienced through the loss of your property, choose not to vindicate yourself. Choose instead to trust God to vindicate and resolve. Jesus here is reflecting on what God's people were encouraged to pray from Psalm 37. Here, verses 5 to 9 of that psalm. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the, land, for the Lord shall inherit the land. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is an expression of what it means to be meek, to not use our power, to not use our rights, but to restrain for the use, the use of them for a greater good. Here we are trusting God to vindicate and resolve. Because we are trusting God to do it on a much grander scale than what we would accomplish by punching our bully or overthrowing our oppressors. We are entrusting ourselves to the God who produces real righteousness and justice. And what Jesus is pointing us to is a greater sense of justice than an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, but justice and righteousness that reflects that of God. What Jesus is asking of us is to seek good from love, Not just to restrain ourselves from doing harm, and not just to do good things to others externally while inside gritting our teeth. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus isn't just saying grin and bear it. Jesus is saying, reorient your perspective on those who inconvenience and insult and oppress you such that you love them. 
for it's from the place of love that true justice is accomplished. The end of the passage says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Only God's righteousness, only God's justice is perfect. We are called to image His justice. Paul reflects in Romans twelve fourteen, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus is calling us to a grander vision of justice and righteousness motivated by love rather than what we think we deserve or what the law says we are entitled to. What does this look like for us? This looks like an examination in our daily life and a seeking of wisdom because we don't have all these same exact situations. And Jesus isn't saying, give to the poor such that you become so poor yourself that you need to rely on others. He's not saying you should go to court and give away your house and all your possessions. But he is challenging us. Seriously challenging us to examine in situations of insult and injury and injustice whether we will operate from our sense of self-entitlement and our rights rather than the love that reflects the true judge, God himself. Perhaps this will illustrate it for us. This week, abortion is in the news yet again with what's going on in Texas. So again, conversations are happening about is abortion good? Is it ethical? Why might it be good? Why is it wrong? With many people disagreeing, some ways helpfully and some ways not. But one of the arguments consistently used to justify the ending of an unborn life is personal autonomy. This is my body. This is my choice. And many, if not most, Christians would respond that's not sufficient. There is another life involved. Your personal autonomy, your personal freedom, your hopes for your future are not sufficient grounds to justify an abortion. Brothers and sisters, we are called to be consistent and reflect what Jesus is saying here. Another conversation happening right now, and an important conversation, is happening around things like vaccine passports, masks, and vaccine mandates. And these are important discussions. And let me just ask you to hear what I'm saying and not to hear what I'm not saying. These are important conversations that need wisdom. There's science involved. There's public health involved. But what Jesus says here is when we respond to ethical situations of injustice, opposition, and oppression... Our personal freedom, our individual rights, our sense of entitlement is, cannot be the starting place of a response from a Christian. There might be what is good for our neighbor. It might be what does God command. It might be what is wise in these situations. And we may end up in some of the same places, but the ends never justify the means. And the place that we want to end up as a good place for a decision on abortion, on public health, on how we do our jobs, how we vote, can never be as Christians what I am due. 
Because you would do this to me, then I deserve to have this. Jesus is calling us to a different perspective on how we respond. If you're challenged by what I said, if you're challenged by Jesus saying to turn the other cheek, to love the person that oppresses you, to treat that co-worker who annoys you, to not expose the person who embarrassed you at work, if that is challenging, consider again what Jesus is saying. He is saying to Judeans, to Jews, who have been violently taken over by Romans, by pagans, by those that would insult the living God, and he is saying these men, under their law, their law, not God's law, their law say they are entitled to make you carry the implements of your oppression. Give them an extra mile. If Jesus with a straight face can say this to the Jews who are starting to follow him, then we need to consider where are we acting, not out of love for our neighbor, not out of wisdom from Scripture, but where might we be tempted to respond to personal injustice with a sense of entitlement in our rights rather than the love that God has called us to. When we make those decisions from those places, from the wisdom and the greater call to love, then we are much better grounded in whatever we are discussing. But why is Jesus asking us to do this in the first place? Why not resist the Romans? Why not fight the person in court? Why turn the other cheek? Why give of your hard-earned property to the person that is poor and wants to borrow it? Well, on one hand, because... He is calling us to trust, as I already mentioned, to have faith in the king who will bring about true justice. But partly because what Jesus is asking of his disciples, what he is pointing to in his description, is because the justice of the kingdom, the peace of the kingdom that he is seeking for his disciples, is not earthly justice, but heavenly justice. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, it only prevents unjust responses. It does not accomplish justice. It is always responsive to injustice rather than creating a just and righteous order. The only just and righteous order is that which comes from God. That's why Jesus says we are called to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect because He is the one that defines what is right and what is just. And he is the one that has exemplified what that looks like in not just loving those who love him, but in loving the just and the unjust. God shows us that he wants us to have a righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. That's what Jesus said at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount. And now for those who are feeling good, well, I restrained myself. I didn't punch that bully in the face. I didn't gossip about that person gossiping about me. Jesus says, well, I'm glad you're doing that, but you shouldn't feel good about that sense of justice because you're doing purely what the pagans and the Gentiles do. What good is it for you to treat those who treat you well well? We can't be content with tit for tat, with you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. This is just an exchange, a commerce of favors. This is not heavenly love that produces heavenly righteousness. You cannot be peacemakers when you are only spending time with your allies. 
the love of God which produces real justice looks like the blessing of others who include our enemies. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, the rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus is telling us that Christians and atheists eat of the bread grown by the providence of rain and sun by the same God. That courtroom judges and those convicted under the law and in prison, they both can enjoy the laughter of a child. Heroes and villains can both appreciate the beauty of a sunset. Liars, thieves, adulterers, abusers, we all live in a world where we experience unmerited, undeserved beauty, wonder, and blessing. These blessings the enjoyment of them, the experience of them, God does not withhold, for they point to Him. They express His grace, mercy, and patience. And so the question is, if we are seeking God's kingdom, if we see Jesus as the means to experience God's kingdom, are we going to express a peace and just society that reflects God? Or just the lowest common denominator of you scratch my back, I scratch yours? Jesus opened up in the Beatitudes saying, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. He rehashes that idea here. He says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Our calling as the disciples of Christ is to show who God is. A God who grants unmerited favor and love even to those who oppose him. This is who God's people are supposed to be. This is who Israel was supposed to be, but wasn't. In Isaiah 50, 7 through 8, it's part of a passage that describes uh, Israel, who is supposed to be the servant of God. It says, But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. He who will contend with me, let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. And yet, what do the verses immediately before that say? This person who's expressing trust in God? It is the one who has given his back to those who strike him, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. This is who Israel was supposed to be, but when they failed to be that, this is who Jesus came to be, to come and be insulted, to have his beard plucked, to have false rumors spread about him, to be beaten Unjustly, and then to be nailed to a cross. This is who Jesus was, what he did. And not just at the last moments of the life, not just in the grand victory at the cross. Perhaps more fitting is when we look earlier in Jesus' life how he continued to model this. In Matthew chapter 13 and Mark chapter 6, we see Jesus, he's going back to his hometown of Nazareth. And they reject him. They say, who is this? He's the carpenter. He's the son of Mary. There's no way he's doing miracles. There's no way what he's saying can be true. And at this point, if we're reading these chapters, we are probably thinking of all of the movies about our high school reunions or our own experience of high school reunions where we want to go back and show the bully or show the popular person how we've done well in life. 
This is why flame songs are, are so important. Like Taylor Swift's Mean debuted number 11 on the billboards where she says, Someday I'll be living in a big old city and you'll all you'll ever be is mean. I'm going to win. You're going to lose. Ha ha. And in the face of his hometown, Jesus who can call down angels, Jesus who can turn stones into bread, Jesus who can drive out demons, Jesus who can make the blind see, refuses to satisfy himself in this way. Because there is not faith, there is no reason for him to perform signs. He resists proving himself, justifying himself. Because his greater purpose is showing the love of God. The Messianic King shows us how true righteousness depends on God. And it expresses the love of our Heavenly Father, whom Jesus came to glorify. How are we going to do this? Jesus is saying in the passage, one of the, the verses in today's passage that was hardest for me is, Do not resist the one who is evil. Do not resist the evil one. Yet, doesn't Jesus say that we are to pray, deliver us from evil, deliver us from the evil one? Aren't we supposed to care about injustice and oppression? What does this mean to not resist the evil one? Jesus is saying that we can't resist evil outside of ourselves until we have acknowledged the evil within. It's not wrong for us to have a desire to fix things, to make them just. But in order to do so, we have to acknowledge our own propensity to hurt and damage within. We're often reminded these days that hurt people hurt people. We often look to that as an explanation of context when someone does something that is horrendous or violent or abusive and point to their own stories. I don't know John's backstory, the student in my fifth grade classroom, but in all likelihood, John had things going on in his personal family life that were being exhibited in his behaviors. And so that call that hurt people hurt people can often call us to be compassionate in the response to the wrongdoing of others. But we should also consider the fact that hurt people hurt people as a warning to us. Because we've all been hurt. We've all been insulted. We've all been oppressed. We've all been bullied in some way. Maybe not in the ways that other people have, but none of us have escaped being hurt. And so there is within us a seed of hurting others. And Jesus says, resist that. And instead, love. We may not be tempted to do it with swords or fists, but with resentment, with gossip, with one-upmanship, with competition. Jesus says we can do this when we see in our enemies ourselves. And as we see those who have opposed what is right, our own opposition to what is right because we have opposed God. That when Jesus says he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust, and then he ends us saying you are to be perfect because your heavenly Father is perfect, we are to realize that before we can ever consider ourselves in the good or in the just category, we first need to consider ourselves in the unjust and the evil category. 
and those who have been recipients of God's love. I read a poem this week. I'm going to share it with you. It starts, as Kester Smith writes, he starts with quotations, Make me a servant. I sing the words and mean them until people come. Making demands and treating me like a servant. That's when I push back. Say, you can't make me. Forgetting that when I do, my prayer is undone. None of what we are called to do, we are able to do without first relying on the only one who has truly done this for us. Jesus didn't say, make me a servant purely in words, but he made himself a servant, taking on human flesh. He is the only one that has truly served with love, humility. He washed the feet of his disciples. He touched the leper. He healed the sick. And he blessed those who cursed him. Only way that we can turn the other cheek, that we can go the extra mile, that we can give freely, is to know that Jesus has first done this for us. I said at the beginning that I wish my teachers had told me while I was sitting there with John, with some of the other students, so that we could bless him, so that we could change his future, we could reorient him towards a better trajectory. But there was something I'm glad that I didn't know at the time. My parents talked to the teachers, especially after the incident where I was punched and my teacher confided in my parents. They said, frankly, we're fed up with John. And if Ian was to respond by hitting him in response, we would turn and look the other way. They were giving me a pass to do the very thing that Jesus calls us not to do. And had I known that, in all likelihood I would have taken them up on that opportunity. And in so doing, I might have added to John's woes. It certainly wouldn't have changed him. Jesus calls us to see our role not as to merely endure, not merely to get back what is ours, but to trust in him for vindication, for justice, and to love the way that he does. For an eye for an eye can't change the world, but God's love for those who are enemies and sinners against him can. What did Jesus do when we insulted him? When we beat him? when we nailed him to a cross to suffocate in the sun amid the jeer of onlookers, he said, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And then he used that injustice to offer, offer satisfaction for our sins, forgiveness, eternal life, and adoption so that we could be called sons of the Father. Brothers and sisters, I struggle to turn the other cheek I struggle to go the extra mile. I struggle to give freely of my property. But when we follow the way of Jesus, dependent on Jesus, we are children of the living God. Let's pray. God, your word is challenging, but it is blessing. Help us to go from here not only with instruction, but the power to apply it and live it out, we pray. 
In Jesus' name, amen.